This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine. My name is Kyle. And uh, I think I'm Dave, still. And I'm The Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film Tootsie. Michael Dorsey. He was a fine actor. Maybe a great actor. But for every role he wanted, there was a reason why he wasn't right. Sorry, you're too tall. I can be shorter. Nah, can't use you. Too short. Oh, I can be taller. Too moody. Next. Too old. Too stubborn. You're too much trouble. Too tough. Too temperamental. Too pushy. Too difficult. Michael, no one will hire you. Just watch me. Boy, did he show us. So of course, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue to uh, do this show since, you know, the machine doesn't pay us to watch these movies. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there, too. Now, Dave, before we get too far into the episode, you might recall last week where I was talking about how the machine is some for some reason slipping out each night. Do you remember That's this? Uh, probably not the right verb. Yeah, Probably. Yeah. Anyways, it's it's brought back. You've probably noticed it here. It's like the big elephant in the room here. Uh, this huge door that oh. it's uh, it's brought back. You might remember from season one where we had like a guest star door that just oh, was right. there that yeah, people yeah, would yeah. would appear through because like, that a made special sense. Portal. Right. Logic. Yeah. Deep, deep, and rich fiction, Dave. You must uh, you must know. So I'm just weirdly curious about if and when this door will ever become important into the fiction of this show. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait a second. Dave, I think there's a knock. Well, that's convenient. Jose, thank you. You're welcome back to the show. Hi. Um, <laughs> it's it's great to be back. You know, it's wonderful that the guests on this podcast decide just to wander through random interdimensional doorways. But I, Time, I, I, yeah. uh, I thank you so much for doing so. Of course. I mean, how much worse could it get? It's very true. <laughs> welcome to 2022, everyone. Well, welcome to literally the year 1982. That is currently where we're at. We're, we're just before New Coke, so you can enjoy classic Coca-Cola. You, of course, have been here before. Um, hopefully, hopefully you have some time to sit down, watch, and talk about the movie Tootsie with us. Oh, I always have time for Tootsie. <laughs> good, good. I want to actually divert some people's attention to an article you wrote here recently. And correct me if, my, if I'm wrong. It was on Polygon, right? Yes, it was on Polygon. So on Polygon about the movie Encanto, um, what uh, what did you write about? I basically wrote uh, a little a little essay about how refreshing it was to see such a positive take on Colombia, since mm-hmm. uh, for listeners at home, I am Colombian. So many times when I mentioned that in the U.S., people mm-hmm. asked about drugs. And I don't appreciate that. <laughs> no, so bet. it was it was it was uh, interesting to have a an international perspective that was not only positive but also very thematically rich. Kind of had a lot to say about Colombia, not just as a setting, but as uh, an idea. 
And I basically wrote about my feelings about all that and how much it meant to me. Yeah, it's it's a really well-written article. I really, really enjoyed it. So definitely I would recommend people going over there and, and reading it. And Kanto is having a bit of a moment here too. I'm actually very surprised having watched the movie because the song, We Don't Talk About Bruno, is like, it was like the number one song on like the Billboard Top 100 or something like that. The yeah. first time in like 25 years, like a, a, a song from Disney has hit the number one position or something like that. I should check my sources on that. I think it's since like a whole new world from Aladdin. I, this is not like a, like a, a, what is it called? Like a hot take or anything. Cause everyone says the same thing. I just find it weird because I don't even find that to be the best song from the score. So I, it's really weird that that's the song that kind of like blew up. I, I understand. It's not my favorite song either, but I do think it's the most fun. Mm. And and definitely the catchiest. So I do get why it's so popular. Uh, it's not that I don't like it. I love it, but it's not my favorite. Mm -hmm. It's just a really good soundtrack. It has a, a lot of really good songs. It's been a while since I've seen an animated movie really feel like a Broadway musical. Like it's actually choreographed really well, which I'm sure that's what in part what Disney wants to do is to make this a stage show at some point. So I understand that's probably part of the reason. But the choreography actually is like, I really noticed, I'm like, oh, I could really see real people doing this on stage really easily. I'd like to choreograph you to shut up. Yeah, they got a, they got a Colombian choreographer to do, mm -hmm. uh, to choreograph most of the songs, which isn't usually done in a lot of animated movies. Like if you look at like Frozen or like Tangled or other animated musicals, they have some choreography but not really like orchestrated musical numbers and i think that that approach right. really served the story not only because it's you know a very broadway-esque musical thanks to mm -hmm. lin-manuel miranda but it's also colombians love to dance uh well so what is the name of the article again encanto is more of than just about representation it's about defiance well, yeah, let's talk a little bit here about Tootsie here then. I guess that is what we're here to talk about more broadly here today. I think there's a few things we need to talk about here in general. First off, the main star of this, of course, is Dustin Hoffman. So, Jose, what is your history with Dustin Hoffman in general? I think he was one of the first actors that I watched in movies that I was like, holy crap, this is a really good actor. In part because of Tootsie, I remember when I watched it for the first time, I was kind of blown away by how good he was. Uh, every time that I saw like a new performance of his, uh, of course, uh, I guess Rain Man hasn't uh, aged sure. particularly well in some regards, but I remember also being very impressed with him in that, you know, when I was uh, younger and not as privy as the conversations surrounding <laughs> the movie. In general, I think he's a very good actor. Even some of his more recent stuff is pretty good. He was really good in Chef. And mm, right. uh, he's a lot of fun in Kung Fu Panda, I think. I haven't watched knew, that since it came out. If you didn't bring out. it up, Dave was going to bring that up, I'm sure. So, Well, yeah, Dustin Hoffman is one of the great American actors, whatever that means anymore. We saw him last year in Straw Dogs, that uh, heartwarming right. family film. <laughs> God, yeah. Jesus. He's undeniably one of the faces of how we understand Hollywood acting uh, to look like. Mm -hmm. um, but as we talked about last year, he's like all these kind of people, a bit of a polarizing, like he seems like a very sure. single-minded type of person. And uh, when we talk about the production of this film, I think 
he's kind of an interesting character. Yeah, <laughs> as I'm, human I'm, being. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure a lot of this will come up here. I think I don't want to make excuses, but it definitely the subtext. If you ever hear people talk about Dustin Hoffman, he knows what he wants to do in a movie, and he doesn't really like to budge from that very much. So there's a lot of fighting that usually happens on his movies, specifically the ones that he is the star of as well. I, I guess it depends on what side of the line you come down on. Some people think actors are just there to fulfill a director's vision, and some people are like, no, they're there to collaborate with a director to try and make something great. So it kind of depends on how you want to want to frame that. I will say, um, I remember this from another podcast I was recently listening to, and I don't know why the subject came up, but the subject of Dustin Hoffman came up. And his 80s is weird. I don't know if anyone, if either of you also looked it up. Do, do either of you know how many movies he was in in the 80s, the whole decade? No. No. Five. Oh. He was in five movies in the entire 10 years of the 1980s. Part of that, by the sounds of it, is because he pissed off a lot of directors, so no one wanted to hire him. But also, he was like super picky about what he wanted to do. So now that being said... He wins an Oscar for in Rain Man. <laughs> so he picked that one. He's in this movie and uh, he do, does Death of a Salesman and then the two other movies that no one ever talks about. So at least three of the five had some sort of cultural influence, which is not a which is not a bad thing. One of the interesting things about him being single minded is he was having a hard time breaking. I remember last year uh, when we talked about it because mm -hmm. he's too short, quote unquote. Then he gets the graduate. And instead of running on a stereotype, he's like, I'm never going to make this award-winning type of movie again. So he does Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> he's just, uh, he just doesn't give a fuck. Pretty interesting, kind of a strange, mm -hmm. you have to be very egotistical, I think, to make it in Hollywood because, uh, right. I mean, it takes a lot. I think it takes a certain type of personality to survive uh, that world. The world seems a little creepy to me, frankly, as we I mean, I'm, orbit the periphery sure, of like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also think too um, this is probably a little unfair because i do actually think his performance in the graduate is undeniable but it's so good i also think he kind of hit i kind of think he hits at exactly the right time where hollywood would have allowed him to become a leading man where even like seven years eight years later after that i don't know if they would have been and because he's so entrenched from those first few movies he's he had he was able to continue that because he's not a born baby he's not like a beautiful looking man yes he, he would be a character actor he'd be a supporting actor and everything he would not be like the lead in most of the movies that he would actually no, go I, on and that, be in no and the only reason i'm gonna say now is because there's been pretty people before him there's pretty people that year there's pretty people after there's ugly people before there's ugly people it's not about who are his the other height. people, Dave? You need to name names. It's not about his height or his good looks. He he has that thing. You know, we kind of talk about mm -hmm. this. The great actors, regardless of like some of them, like Warren Beatty is always Warren Beatty in his films, but we pay to see Warren Beatty because everybody wants to see Warren Beatty. But there's guys like, uh, uh, yeah, Pacino's okay at this, but definitely um, Dustin Hoffman. And there's people that can act, act. And whatever role this guy was going to get, he would have transcended that thing. I mean, The Graduate itself is not a great movie because of what it is in and of itself. It has great performances in it that elevate it. Otherwise, it's just a your basic sort of like existential thing or transient. You know, it's just like this uh, almost boring thing where everybody's so unhappy with their lives. But you <laughs> need someone to lift that up and to kind of give us a connection, you know, help us connect to the character that's in it. And that's something that mm -hmm. he's... You know, not to be, I'm not a big Hoffman uh, fan club guy, but I think it's an unfair thing to say that. Uh, I, I, I preface saying it might be unfair. So, <laughs> uh, I, the second person I think we need to talk about is Sidney Pollack. 
And I find it really funny that we're talking about two directors in two weeks with the name of Sydney, who are nominated for Best Director this year. <laughs> of all the names, there's two people named Sydney that are nominated for Best Director this year. So, Jose, what is your history with Sydney Pollock? Uh, I honestly, other than the fact that my film school had a classroom named after him. Oh. That was just called like the Sydney Pollock room or all, all, it, all the, all the, the fancier name. <laughs> no, all the rooms just had like, at least in like uh, my oh. building just were named after filmmakers. I see. So it's like, oh, today we have class in Pollock. Oh, today we have class <laughs> in uh, Altman. I don't know. Which is funnily enough how I discovered a lot of directors. I was like looking up like, oh, who mm. is this guy who's my classroom this named after? I like to think that in the Altman room, it's just a bunch of kids talking all at the same time over top of each other i mean technically that was every room in the film school but in the altman mm, one it was sure. just more fun <laughs> all natural light beyond that i <laughs> i think he's my experience with him as a director has mostly just been uh tootsie i haven't watched mm-hmm. i feel like i'm forgetting one uh so up until this point if we're just looking because he was of course a uh, an actor as well before he became a director, but I would say he's probably more well known as as a director now. He uh, before this would have done. They shoot horses, don't they? Jeremiah Johnson, the way we were, the Yakuza, Bobby Deerfield, and then after this, he would have gone on to do Out of Africa, The Firm, the remake of Sabrina, Random Hearts. So those are kind of his big <laughs> big films that he would have done. Uh, how about you, Dave? Any any love for Sidney Pollack as a director? I don't know. I'm looking at this filmography. It's funny. I don't know why. But I've watched Three Days of the Condor like more than once. Maybe I was getting into Robert Redford. I have no idea. But could have, yeah, because um, he did like four Robert Redford movies. Yeah, Jeremiah so. Johnson. That's the uh, he's got a good smile. Mm-hmm. Wait, that's the one with Faye Dunaway. You see the gif? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I've and seen that his one. Face is a gif. That's right. <laughs> I have actually seen Three Days of a Condor. <laughs> the yeah. Firm. I didn't. You know, I thought the remake of Sabrina's weak, but that's okay. I mean, uh, I actually just I feel like he, I thought he was. In more films, he's got such a memorable face, and we saw him in Eyes Wide well, Shut. He, but I, yeah, I was gonna say we we saw him in Eyes Wide Shut in our 1999 season. But he pops up every so often. Directors like to have him come on as cameos, like all the time. So yeah, he's he's got a great he's got a great character face. I mean, he did <laughs> Altman, he did Kubrick, he did uh, Zemeckis. Yeah. He, he, yeah, he does cameos in uh, like small cameo-like roles in a lot of movies. I had a cameo in the last Scorsese, but he cut my scene. Um, and always really good. Like, I always liked seeing him as like, oh, he's the boss, or he's the guy <laughs> just talking to this guy over here. So always like when he shows up. I will say, the other big one that I've seen, because I guess I've seen The Firm. What other ones have I seen? The, I have to say that uh, the, the movie he actually wins Best Director for, Out of Africa, has always been a little bit overinflated for me, but that's my opinion. Maybe I just don't like that type of sweeping epic. I don't know. They whip a lot of lions in that movie, though. So, What year is it's it? Kind of Do you think it's real? Is it the 70s? No, no it's 85, 85 so I think. So they may have actually... But yes, I'm pretty sure they actually whip those lions, <laughs> to answer your question. I think uh, when I was in when I was in high school, I, I was like, I'm going to watch every Meryl Streep-nominated movie. And um, mm. I started watching Out of Africa... And, you know, I was like 14 and I was like, mm, right, yeah, yeah. I don't want to watch this. <laughs> yeah, it's not a 14 year old movie. <laughs> Definitely not <laughs> at all. Is it true? I don't want to put words in our mouth. Has everyone here seen the movie Tootsie before? Yes. Yes. 
Yes, because I have. Okay, so this, all three of us are coming at this at least as a second viewing. How long ago did you watch this? Uh, I think as soon as I got the Criterion Edition, uh, like two years ago, maybe I watched it last okay. time. But that was my second. This time. used to be on Criterion. What the fuck? Everything used to be on Criterion, Dave, and then it gets pulled off of the service. I don't know if it was on the service. I <laughs> have a, the DVD, the, the, like the Blu-ray. Uh, That's right. Uh, Dave, can you recall like the last time you watched no. Tootsie? Has to be fifteen years ago. I have no idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go even longer than that. I have to say that it's it's probably getting close to twenty years since the last time I yeah, watched this 2000s, movie. Thousands, maybe. Yeah. 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 Like, and I remember liking it, but if you recall, Dave, I made a a proclamation at the end of last week's episode which is like i cannot imagine that this movie holds up mm, mm. <laughs> uh, you know made in the 80s about a guy who is cross-dressing as a woman like there's no way that this is going to hold up so i'm 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 kind of excited to to go into this i will say the the cool thing because this does not happen very often it's just oh, very occasionally that a movie that is a comedy is nominated for Best Picture and nominated for Best Director, like a bunch of categories. It's had 10 nominations this year in 1982. And for a comedy to do that, it's pretty extraordinary for that it, to happen. So. Yeah, it's arguably kind of a romantic comedy too. So that's even more yeah. like not in that wheelhouse at all. Uh, now, don't say that to Dustin Hoffman because he says this is not a comedy film. But yes, <laughs> I think everybody else will say that this is supposed to be at the very least a comedy. I'm imagining everyone on set was like, yeah, this is a comedy. And Dustin Hoffman was like, no, this is a drama. Screaming and everyone was just being funny around him. No. Okay, so what we'll do here then, uh, Dave and I are going to just go over here into the other room to thank some sponsors. Uh, Jose, I've left some snacks out here for you, so feel free to uh, peruse those. What did people eat in the 80s? Taffy? <laughs> Taffy? Cocaine. I like how you think the 1980s is the 1950s, Dave. No, no one was eating taffy corn? in the 1980s. <laughs> Kettle corn. Just, just a candied apple. That's the only a thing that they could apple? eat back in the 1980s. Uh, okay, we'll go thank some sponsors, and then when we return, we'll be talking a little bit more about the movie Tootsie. I know this is going to make me sound conceited, Dave. I think I'd be a hot woman. Wow. I'm just saying. I, I need to see some photos first. I, I couldn't corroborate mm. it. Yeah. I'll send, I'll send some to you later Can on. Can you shave cleanly enough? <laughs> you don't tell me what to do. <laughs> Listen, Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, a locally grown, community-supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. And luckily enough, they are one of our sponsors here this week, so let's go and listen to one of our other great shows. In a world where boring dinners and ungrateful children make cooking almost unbearable. Whoa, that's a little too dramatic. Let's try this again. I'm Heather Dyer. I'm Erin Wager. And I'm Sarah Somersunderum. This is Three Kitchens, a podcast about home cooking. Whether you like cooking or you just like eating, join us to talk about food. We'll have new episodes of Three Kitchens every Tuesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Three Kitchens. They'll tickle your funny bone, wet your appetite, and warm your heart. Did that guy think he was Bruce Wayne? <laughs> I kind of liked it, actually. He made us sound super badass. <laughs> what a great, great show that one was that was just put in. You know, it's if you had to connect something with the word show, I would show that show. <laughs> I have to talk to you about Park Power. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta. 
They offer internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. Park Power is owned by Chris Kozowski, who has a growing and well-deserved reputation for being a guy who cares. If you're in the Edmonton area, you may have seen him around town in his signature bow tie supporting local causes and boosting local business. He walks that talk with his business. It's why Park Power shares its profits with local charities. As a new customer, you can choose a community partner to receive 10% of the proceeds from your electricity bill. For example, Kyle, CKUA Radio mm -hmm. Network. Visit nice. parkpower.ca slash CKUA to find out more. I like that you got to read that one, Dave, because you're uh, gaining a well-deserved reputation for someone who doesn't care. So, uh, there we are. Well, you know, give me something to care about. <laughs> all right, well, we have sat down. We got to watch uh, all of us revisit this movie. So I'm going to throw it over to you first, Jose. I forgot to prep you for this, so I apologize. But if someone came up to you and asked, what is Tootsie about? What is like the quick plot description you would describe to them? For them to watch oh, this movie. what it's about in terms of plot, not uh, like themes. Yeah, just plot. I would say Tootsie is about a very difficult actor who has to change his identity in order to get work. And in doing so, he ends up getting cast in a female role in a soap opera. Mm -hmm. I that's guess right. I should have mentioned that everyone yeah, thinks he's a woman. a woman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. <laughs> Can you tell I'm very bad at this? Uh, <laughs> that's all right jose what did you think about this last rewatch of the movie i think every time that i sit down to watch tootsie and i guess for the second time i i'm part of me is like oh this is not going to you know have aged very well and then i rewatch it and i'm like oh it's actually somewhat better than similar stuff that's get made today right uh, especially uh, given that Tootsie was kind of remade recently to a lot of controversy in the theater world. Oh, yes, it was. Is that a thing? Yeah. Oh, interesting. <laughs> How about you, Dave? I'm I'm actually so curious to know what you thought about your revisit. Well, I guess we should preface that uh, here in Canada, we had to watch it on the CTV app. So there were actually commercials yes. in it, which is kind of annoying. Can I say something, Dave? I don't know how it happened. I did not get a single commercial. Oh, yeah, one of those I things where why. it just skipped and it would black yeah. out and come back. Fuck you. And then come back. Yeah, go fuck it, yourself. It occasionally does it, which it, it, it freaks out. And that's why I never had to watch a single commercial while watching this movie, which was nice. I had to have Ewan McGregor show up every five fucking minutes and tell me how I'm not going to regret buying things and I should go live my life. Mm. Anyways, it's um, better than it's better than Matt Damon saying that you buy an NFT or something <laughs> like that. So, <laughs> uh, so I, I bring that up because you know it does break the rhythm of this film a little sure. bit. But I, you know, I actually uh, enjoyed most of it. I, I was like Jose's uh, suggesting. I wasn't sure whether this would still work on a you know I guess a PC level. But it's shot in a way that I, you know, I'm carried along. I enjoyed watching the movie. And then, you know, I have some questions at the end. Uh, mostly, as you <laughs> both brought up, the idea that this should have been a rom-com. I'm kind of on Dustin's side. I think that's the weakest part of this film. <laughs> mm. But we'll talk about that. It was actually kind of fun to watch. So it wasn't, wasn't a train wreck. I think, I think it's a good movie. Yeah. I am here to say that I have to eat crow. I actually ended up loving 
my rewatch of this movie. I thought it was way funnier than I remembered it being. Like, there were certain jokes that was like, oh, that was really a well-crafted joke that you just made there. And I think the reason why it works, at least for me, for the most part, it still has, again, that 80s-ness of, like, we have to make fun of people that are different than us. But for the most part, the joke is not, this is Dustin Hoffman in a dress. And most of it is like, oh, it's this guy discovering that there's been sexism around him the entire time and he didn't even realize it. And he even joined in on it. So I think that there's more in a deeper exploration of this topic than some some other stuff. Because I really honestly thought I was going to come into this like I did with, um, say, rewatching like Ace Ventura or even like Mrs. Doubtfire. And you're like, like, this doesn't really age all that well. Like some of the jokes just aren't at the same level anymore. And so I was pleasantly surprised. I think it is the Dustin Hoffman performance that carries it through this. But he wasn't um, going to be a star, is, right? Because he just got a lucky break because that one year he was allowed to you, star in you, a film. <laughs> it has nothing to do with his acting, right, Kyle? <laughs> I, 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 I always say right place, right time. Because when we go through the backstory of who was supposed to be in this movie, it does change, I think, how this would have been presented. Oh, I don't know about that. I'm, I'm curious about that. Well, we will get to that. I was up for the role, but I turned it down because I was promised short circuit. Biggest mistake of my life. As far as the comedy bits go, Terry Gar, for me, is the standout in this movie. There are certain line reading she does that's like, only you would have been able to make this even <laughs> funny. I want to talk about a very specific scene. It's when uh, he comes back and basic, she basically breaks up with him, right? Because he finally reveals what's going on. He's in love with this other woman. And all she's, like, in the script, I'm, I'm sure, it just says, fuck. And that's what she's supposed to say. And But she was like, fuck! Like, she does, does this weird, like, intonation thing. Cracked me up. I was like, that is such a great way to even just approach just a weird standard line like that. That scream she does right before that. That scream is like, so good. I just, I just, I know I'm fanboying here a little bit, but it's just like any movie I see her in, even bad movies, it's like, gosh, I wish you had become a bigger star. Well, uh, and there's sick. reasons why she stopped yeah. working. She like, I know that she got MS and, and couldn't continue, but like, she's so good. She's so good in this that it makes me mad that uh, Jessica Lange was the one who won the acting prize in this movie because i think it should have been terry yeah and it's it's one of those performances that it's like god this is such a good comedic performance it makes me so happy that it was nominated because they don't do that a lot right uh it's kind of like marisa tomei's win it's kind of like god that's what i was gonna this bring is up so yeah. good as just exactly the kind of supporting performances that should be awarded like rewarded yeah if the oscars were a legitimate process right. of and you cared yeah. about yeah. cared about comedies in the slightest <laughs> or movies i do somewhat yeah. agree with you dave in that i do think like the the quote-unquote like romance between like dustin hoffman and jessica lang in this movie is is probably the weakest thing i don't know it's not enough for me to like ruin the movie for me no. but it's like it's i actually for everything else i like <laughs> i like him being on the general hospital ripoff i like his interactions with bill murray i like the stuff with terry gar even some of the stuff with jessica lang is fine when it gets too much into that that's where it's like oh, okay whatever I can power through this because the rest of it is so good and so well written that I'm kind of along for the ride. So it's it's not enough for me to hate it. Uh, so all it is like it's so good in so many places. Anyways, I'm I'm the biggest one who's surprised by this. I honestly thought I was going to come into here this week and be like, let me tell you why this is bullshit and like rip on this movie. But just to make a point on the Terry Gar character and the strength of this writing in in spite of whatever flaws people look at it, mm -hmm. that blow up 
is like set up throughout the entire film at the very beginning yes. when they're practicing the scene. And it's just mm -hmm. incredible. To, even the inversion of everything that Dustin Hoffman uses against her is, you know, flipped and used against him when he's, uh, yes. what's the character's, I don't want to call her Tootsie because that's the sexist term, right? But Dorothy is the, is yeah, the character. Dorothy. It's, it's such a well-written, I think it was originally a play, wasn't it? But, uh, or a book, I can't remember. No. What it was, was an, it's just an idea. It's actually an original idea. Uh, it, so it's it's developed really well. I don't know if that's Dustin Hoffman kind of uh, reworking it, but it's uh, it's I, it I holds up really well. I also have one. Yeah. So here's my theory. Maybe Jose, you can see if you agree with me. I do think it's in part with Dustin Hoffman because if you watch some of the YouTube videos of him talking about this, like he breaks down crying because he really fell deeply while making this movie. If you don't know. They're actually, they had to actually go to court about who got credit for writing this movie. There was a huge fight over like how they were actually going to credit it. Cause like seven different writing teams came on board to like punch this up. But one of the main people who rewrote this was Elaine May <laughs> and who we've talked about on this podcast before Dave. Oh yeah. A new leaf. And I don't want to say it's like, it's, it's only her because I think Larry Gelbart and, and all the other people, like they have a lot of comedy writing in them. I really think it might have been her that really bumped up a bunch of the female characters in this script so they feel like real people. And I think that goes a long way. Oh, definitely. Uh, I feel like I felt the same way as like I did um, watching the new James Bond movie that I kept being like, oh, that's, mm. that's a Phoebe Waller-Bridge joke. Right, right. <laughs> uh, uh, sometimes watching Tootsie, I was like, this had to be an Elaine May joke. It's just, it's just so mm -hmm. her. I, I could I could imagine her delivering yeah, so smart, it so well thought yeah. out. So I have a similar theory. So some other things I wanted to bring up here. The biggest one I just want to talk about before we get into like some of the bigger, bigger topics that I'm sure we're going to talk. We're going to discuss. We Dave were discussing this in what movie in the missing episode, right? Where there's those two actors who are like these two are coded as gay, right? Like they're mm -hmm. supposed to be gay characters. These can't say that they are or they're not saying that they are, which is such a it's a weird contrast with the 70s films we were watching the 71 films uh the films from 71 that we were watching because it seemed to be half and half either like they were outwardly these are gay characters and therefore bad and degenerates or they were coded that way and were evil and degenerates well, like that's basically what they were for most polar. of it in 71. yeah fine no but, i mean i shouldn't say it's all all that one yeah, yeah the 70s were more interesting they were quite open yeah to having several different forms whether they were right or wrong but that that haze code baggage was still there yeah what's well, back Th this is a hugely up to say and just ask the questions i actually don't know i could go kind of both ways on this are we supposed to think the bill the bill murray character is gay or is that am i reading too much into that reading too much into it because it's just the way he plays it sometimes it's just like this feels like you're it's affecting just, something know, he's bill murray he's the most sarcastic man on earth I actually watching it, I was like, you know what? Bill Murray should have been gay. Like, his, mm -hmm. I, I was thinking like, oh, his character should have been gay. I do agree that sometimes the way that he plays things is almost like coded. But I think it's because he's playing like artsy New Yorker rather than him playing gay. Uh, what's right. the difference? Uh, this this, this <laughs> right. joke would you kill in a 90s question. like stand up club, I'm sure. How did I get here? Yeah. Um, it's Bill Murray. He's, he's so eccentric. You know, he's, he's like I know. A, I just, in this specifically, it just seemed like he was, I don't know, affecting almost like a higher voice in some cases than, mm. than he normally does. Like, well, yes, a, it's still Bill Murray. A, I'm not stereotype. And B, you're, you just <laughs> well, love Bill Murray. So 
Let it go. Possibly. <laughs> let the record stay. Uh, <laughs> the Bill Murray character in Tootsie is the reason I refuse to move to New York. Mm. Like, oh, whenever I go to New York, which has technically just been once, I feel like all I meet is people like Bill Murray's character in Tootsie. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't want to deal with that. The super pretentious artist. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't even remember uh, the specific uh, joke that he said that made me think of that, or like like the line that he said. But it's just like mm-hmm. the way that like the self importance uh, is just yes. mm-hmm. it's just so um, quintessentially like that New Yorker Big artist city. trope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel like in LA, people are still pretentious, but they're a little bit more like self-aware. But like whenever I run into like New York people, uh, it was kind of like, oh, it's like you're actually like not seeing how pretentious you're being. Um, I'm changing the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like that whole thing about like, oh, I want to run a theater that only runs when it rains. Uh, because I only want yeah, people yeah, yeah, yeah. to see my my show because it's raining out and they need a place to wait it out or something like that. And I'm just like, Stop. I would have left this party. <laughs> yeah, maybe not because Terry Gar was still there. So one of the big things I, I kind of alluded to here just a few moments ago. There's a story that Dustin Hoffman actually talks about in this uh, couple of YouTube videos that I watched here this week. His biggest like acting hurdle was when they. The costume designers had come, the makeup team had come, they had made him look like a convincing woman. But then he looked at pictures and he's like, oh, I like, I thought I would be like an attractive woman. And he had this like crisis of conscience because he says, but I think I'm an interesting person. So then he, he felt like, how many women have I just disregarded because they did not conform to classical beauty, but would have been super interesting to have a conversation with? How many parties have I been to where I just walked past someone who would have been a great person to talk with? And he apparently had like kind of, kind of like a mental breakdown after after this. Had a conversation with his wife and be like, I really am struggling with this. He asked the question like he had to come to terms with like, how would life have been different if I'd been born a woman? Not dressed as a woman in, in the context of this movie, but literally how would my life have been different if I had been born a woman instead of a man? Now, whether you think the movie does a good job of exploring that question, I don't know. But I do think it's an interesting thing to try and unpack here just for a moment. So to throw you under the bus here first, Jose, how do you think your life would have been different had you been born a woman? Oh, my God. Uh, very different. I went to an old boys school. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> well, it's like an impossible question to answer. Yeah. Right? yeah like, can I just interject we'll never, that it's we'll a terrible, know. it's a terrible question. That's like me asking you, Kyle, what it'd be like if you were black. I, you can't, right. you can't, you can't frame that question to Jose that way. I think maybe we should just talk mm-hmm. about does this movie successfully approach this question of a man trying to come to terms that he's an asshole because <laughs> i don't know man like even if we talk about the women in our lives that we respect and consider friends we have no idea what it's like to actually mm-hmm. live their life and i even this story of dustin hoffman trying to grow a conscience is still privileged in a male sense you know this idea that he can feel so- sorry for other people because i dressed as a woman and i was ugly You're like go fuck yourself especially even pretty women have trouble Right? In a sexist culture. It's not about you being ugly. It's just different. It's a weird thing. This is the thing about this movie. It's, I don't know. I find interesting Dustin Hoffman's like self-reflection that also comes from like self-importance. It's like, oh, I look mm-hmm. ugly as a woman, but I'm very interesting. So like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how many... I, well, that's what I was going to bring up. But. How, how many ugly women are interesting? And it's like, 
Okay, I guess you're like a quarter of the way there, Dustin. Keep going. But I do I do think that it's it's interesting that the movie posits that a man literally has to de- has to be the subject of everything that women go through in order to understand it. I find that uh, especially because, you know, men are kind of like socialized to not have a lot of empathy. It's just interesting that that's like the extent that a man has to go to both in the movie and more like in a more meta way, Dustin Hoffman, in order to understand this. I think the movie maybe accidentally makes a point about that, about like, do you really have to literally put yourself in the shoes of a woman to care about what women go through? Well, this is something that Dave and I have actually come across here multiple times as well. I don't know why this topic keeps coming up. The unfortunate part about humanity is that that's kind of true. You can you can push things away until it physically is in your life and that you actually have to deal with. You read all those stories. I shouldn't say read all those stories. There's so many examples of those of people that are like, I didn't think I had to care about like gay rights, women rights until I had a gay son or a daughter or whatever it happens to be. It's like, oh, and then I was confronted by my own biases and I actually had to care about these things. You literally had to have something thrown into your life for you to actually start to care about another person, which is unfortunate, but it seems to be like a, a recurring thing in humanity. And I don't think there should be shame in that. It should be more like a... No. But maybe don't celebrate it. It's like, <laughs> listen, you you should be doing that. We don't need to celebrate you making these breakthroughs. It also shouldn't be shamed. It's like, okay, at least you're understanding these things. At least you're making your own progress. Well, I, 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 get, I think that's the kind of interesting part about this movie specifically, which is whichever writer you want to credit... Dave, you already pointed out, there's so many times where something is introduced or a line is introduced at the earlier part of the movie only to be uh, read back to him or said back to him. And he has to confront the thing that, oh, I said that before. Now this person is saying it to me and really confronting that. I don't think he actually has like the Dustin Hoffman character. I don't really fully think has that character growth or change until maybe the second last scene or the last scene of the movie. So it's not like a a huge like revelation moment that ever happens, but I do think it does a good job of exploring those ideas. So whichever writer you want to credit with them, like, no, we're going to get into the muck here and talk about like, there's some awful things that women have to deal with in 1982. So let's show that through. Does it have to be a man that goes through it? I think weirdly, it does, well, of course, for for, for another man thing? to like yeah. figure it out. Yeah, well, of course it does. And I mean, mm-hmm. we've talked a lot about you know, is there good and bad representation? Is there? Uh, I mean, Jose brought up, should we be rewarding people, sort of addressing the first layer of their bigotry? And you know, as as a parent, I think we have to, otherwise we become punitive. And there's no middle ground, unfortunately. It's either we start talking about punishing people, which is the cancel culture. You know, someone makes a mistake. We're like, we'll never hear from you again. Or someone says, well, I guess I might be racist. You don't have to have a parade, but you should be like, what a great thought. Let's have the next (laughs) conversation. Like, if you don't do it this way, then it becomes punitive too quickly. And then all of a sudden we get a new polarization. You know, it's in human nature to have to uh, discriminate. We can't absorb all this information. We have to draw lines and put people into boxes. It's it's impossible, this idealism that I'll meet every single person and have zero opinion about anything they do until I've spent five hours with them right. and absorb the person. It's bullshit, right? You're going to walk into a cafe and you're going to catalog whatever your terms are, whatever interests you. And what's weird is 
depending on your emotions and the day you're having, you're going to catalog different things, right? If you're feeling particularly lonely, you're going to catalog people you think you want to hold. If you're feeling particularly good about yourself, you might do things where you want to collaborate. I mean, as an artist, you know, I, I don't know, but that's something we can't throw out. And that's, I think, why this movie still has a lot of weight because we get to watch within this box uh, an asshole have to confront his assholeness. And then the language is about sexism and the role of women. But Watermelon Man, we talked about last year a little bit, we didn't watch it, uh, tried to do the same did, thing, but... right? It's like, um, mm -hmm. you know, they'll walk a mile in, a, in another person's right. shoes. Uh, it's hard to do tastefully, but, you know, there's something important about all yeah. these things. You two will never truly understand how hard it is to be a murderous robot. Like, I haven't watched most of them, but I know that in the 80s there were all those weird, like, body swap movies. I was going to say Freaky for, Friday, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, it was like eight movies. Like, I forget. Someone cataloged it. It was, it was this weird thing for, like, three or four years where there was, like, yeah, nine of them that came out. Whereas, like, usually a man into a woman's body or vice versa or something like that. This might have been, like, the start of that in a way where it's like, oh, we could write another movie that yeah, explores maybe. this except worse. Okay, let's do some backstory here then, and then we can jump into some uh, some of the other stuff here. So this film opened up on December 17th of 1982. Currently, it is rated 3.7 on the letterbox. That's out of 5. On IMDb, it's 7.4 out of 10. It has an 88 on Metacritic. And on Rotten Tomatoes, from 61 critics, it's rated at 90%. And from 50,000 plus users, it's rated at 81%. You can uh, purchase this on DVD or Blu-ray. You can buy or rent it on iTunes or YouTube. And in Canada, you can stream it on the CTV app. And if you're Kyle, no commercials. <laughs> and <laughs> if by any chance you're in Colombia, you can watch it on HBO Max. Oh, oh. look at that. Perfect. Oh. Its budget was $21 million. Wow. This was a box office smash when it came can out. Can you imagine, a small parenthesis, can yeah. you imagine a studio like putting in like $20 million today for a movie about like... For a comedy. <laughs> yeah, I mean for a comedy period, I guess. But just yeah. like just like a comedy about exploring like workplace sexual harassment. <laughs> right. It's just kind of like... <laughs> It's, it's crazy. I mean, people talk a lot about how yeah. we're losing like the mid-budget studio comedy, and we are. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's just like God. Imagine if someone made like not like Tootsie, of course. We already have Tootsie. Please, Hollywood, do not remake Tootsie. Mm. It's uh, happening. Yeah, you, <laughs> you you jinxed it. It's happening. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure. So somewhere there's like a spec for like a new Tootsie that's like it. It's like faux progressive, which. By the way, I mm -hmm. don't think that this movie is. There's a lot of faux pro progressivism in Hollywood, and I think that Tootsie is very sincere in its intentions. Yeah. But it's just like, you know, like a girl boss Tootsie. Oh, God, I don't want that. Minority. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listen, you're giving some really bad ideas, and I'm sure this is going to happen within the next three years. <laughs> and, and I'm not going to get a sense. The... So. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this was like, and we'll talk about it, I'm sure, very, very soon. But like the only thing that beat it was E.T., that year and that was like the biggest movie of like all time yeah. at, the, at that time oh my god i didn't know that and sexism still exists i know this didn't solve anything <laughs> thanks a lot sydney god all right it made 177 million dollars in 1982 adjusted for inflation that would be like a movie making 516 million dollars today so it was basically the bridemaids of its time is what i'm trying to say hell yeah where are my bridesmaids fans? Yeah. <laughs> It was like the last good movie Paul Feig made. 
but that's another Mel- Melissa McCarthy nominated for Best Supporting Actress that year for Bridesmaids. So again, one of the few times did she get nominated for that movie? Yeah, I'm deservedly so. Yeah, that that airplane she, scene yeah. just amazing, amazing stuff. <laughs> ten out of ten, Melissa. The bridal shop. Yeah. <laughs> shitting in the sink. Let's just yeah, hand her the statue. Great. Man. The Oscar nominated <laughs> Oscar nominated line. Oscar nominated film. <laughs> it's coming out of me like lava. <laughs> yeah. Both both performance and screenplay were Oscar nominated. Amazing. Maya Rudolph should have got one for the uh, collapse walk on the sidewalk on the road. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's just happening. Just tap. That was genius. Uh, <laughs> there is this, I know you're not on Twitter anymore, Dave, but there is this new Twitter account that is, what is it called? It's like Oscar nominated reactions. So it's all about like them showing the Oscar nominated clip and then bam to what their reaction was in the crowd. And it's sometimes really funny <laughs> what the person's reaction is. I want one of that now for the Melissa McCarthy scene, bam to her in the audience and be like, <laughs> that's me. This plot description for this movie is Michael Dorsey, an unsuccessful actor, disguises himself as a woman in order to get a role on a trashy hospital soap. So, is it, Jose, since the last time you were here, we have this new segment where I get to, like, don my best game show host jacket on here. Guess that tag. Which is, like, you're looking tag. at the actual tagline. The actual tagline on the movie poster for this movie. One of these is correct. And the other two have been completely made up by me. <laughs> so uh, this is the first time we have two contestants on here. Stakes are high. The stakes are high. So is it, it doesn't have a tagline. Is it to become a better man, he had to become a better woman? Or is it he's about to wage the battle of the sexes with himself? Uh, I'm, I'm going to go with B. I'm going to go with two. Okay, Dave is guessing two. Jose, do you want to guess yourself just while we're here? Um, I was also going to say two. I don't think it's three. So just for the hell of it, I'm going to mm. go with it doesn't have one. Ooh, ooh, here we go. Jose would be correct in Damn this it. case. What? Because he actually does not have a tagline. It's ah. one of the few that doesn't have a tagline. I thought this I was actually shocked sure. when I well, found this. The one, yeah. Well, that the, the second one is very good. Uh, yeah. I, I could see it. Thank you. That was a mic completely yeah. made up in my mind. Should have known better. Dustin Hoffman was they like, have no tagline. No tag. Well, it, would, it wouldn't have done as well because people were like, a tagline? I'm not watching this shit. <laughs> you know what? I'm done with this. I, that's very interesting that it didn't have a tagline because, you know, all the posters of this movie, like before, I remember before watching it and I just see posters and like, you know, whatever red, about red it. dress. Yeah. It just has like this, like... I don't know. I thought it was some kind of like political satire, maybe because like the posters don't look like campaign posters. Yeah, I agree. So because yeah. it's all the uh, U.S. flags and stuff behind her sometimes on those posters. I, too, I so. love that they marketed the movie like they probably marketed her in the soap. I mean, we not probably like <laughs> like in the montage right. where they they market her. Mm-hmm. I love that they were like, you know what, this is a great way to market the movie. You know, we'll just show Dustin Huffman in drag and people will want to see that. Right. Which, by the way, another way you can tell this is an 80s movie. There's like five montages in this movie. <laughs> like the and fourth, I'm like, OK, that, like we don't need another montage. That intro, <laughs> like the, the music in the intro is like the most 70s to 80s intro that I've seen. Like yes. that's like that instrumental music. That almost yeah. sounds like later, like mm. the the soap, uh, like music. It's just mm. like it to was, be honest with you, it sounds like a, an eighties sitcom. Yeah, score. Yes. To it was me. so <laughs> it was so eighties. I was like, oh my god, I, I forget mm. that this movie has like this like extremely dated opening. 
cheese covered watching, in cheese. Watching like a Perfect Strangers episode or something like that. <laughs> Perfect uh, <laughs> Strangers. You're aging our audience. I know. This movie, uh, yeah. of course, I was not born until the 90s. I'll pretend. So this star is Dustin Hoffman as Michael Dorsey. Actually, he gets two uh, credits in the, in, the, oh, yeah. in the credits at the very end, which I thought was fun. Uh, but Dustin Hoffman, Jessica Lange as Julie, Terry Garr as Sandy, Dabney Coleman as Ron, Charles Durning as Les, and then Bill Murray as Jeff. Dave, what do you want to tell me about these actors? Well, we talked about a few of them already, but you know what's interesting yes. about 1982? Dustin Hoffman was uh, apparently wanted Blade Runner. He wanted Gandhi. And he was supposed to be in some other thing that was going to be big this year. And he took this project. It's, it's really good that he was not in yeah, Gandhi. Like, who, yeah, like, we, we can all agree on that. Who did he want to be in Gandhi? Like Gandhi, of course. Uh, and then he could talk about how it taught him about how every time he met someone from India, <laughs> right, right, right. he had been so racist. I was an ugly Indian man. And now I understand that there's so many interesting Indian men I could have been talking with. And then if he was in Blade Runner, he'd be like, oh, we are giving such a bad name for robots we really need to understand we're taking advantage of all these machines but i thought it was interesting mm -hmm. that you know 1982 you talked about how he's only even five films but he had his eye on uh, some of the biggest films that were going to be mm -hmm. made this year uh, so he's got a he's got an eye and then the only other thing i don't know if we've mentioned this but i just dug this up about marathon man it's so weird apparently the yeah. producer hated uh, Al Pacino. So Al Pacino originally was supposed to do Marathon Man to be in it oh, with God, Julie Christie. Off. And then yeah. he called, apparently the producer called Al Pacino the midget, which is brutal. Then hired <laughs> Dustin Hoffman to say fuck you because Dustin Hoffman, because Dustin Hoffman's shorter. Yeah. So he did it on purpose yeah. to be a dick. And then Julie Christie opted out and we ended up with uh, one of the great movies. But it's weird. That's a weird mm. little thing that popped up. Yeah. Uh, Jessica Lange is like one of the most awarded female actresses of uh, all time. Mm -hmm. uh, she's got a lot of trophies and a lot of movies. Well, so this is, this is again, another theory. Don't know, but just knowing how I know the Academy, she was also nominated for lead actress this year for a movie called Francis, I, which I have not seen. I, I have. Point that out. Never seen I it. I have. How? Is it good? No, but she's very good in it. <laughs> okay. But the movie's not That's good. Sort of, see, this is, this is my thing, <laughs> is that... It was going to be Meryl Streep this year, no matter what. Meryl Streep was going to win the award this year uh, for Sophie's Choice. This was definitely like a like a consolation Oscar for... This is the consolation yeah. prize for Frances, I think, uh, is what she's getting. Oh, yeah. Because she's not... And so it screws over Terry Garr Because she's not in the that process. good in this. Can I put that out there? Well, she's fine, but she's, yeah, she's not great in this the either, right? She's just pretty, like It's there. the weakest character in the whole movie. I well, agree. Well, you know, yeah, the I interesting agree. thing about Jessica Lange, you know, is that she, before this year with like, you know, the double nomination, she was kind of a joke, like because of, you know, mm -hmm. like King Kong, like that bad 76 version. Everyone yes, saw her. King Kong. Yeah, yeah, everyone saw her as like this kind of like bimbo. And I think the fact that she bounced back in a prestige biopic about a screenwriter so like you know that's already that's already interesting mm -hmm. and then and then like a like one of the biggest movies of the year very different movies francis is one of the most depressing movies i've ever seen uh and then you know please you, tell me we're not watching it kyle i know the machine oh, tells us fuck. but probably not <laughs> and then you, you have her be very incredibly charming and funny in this one and it's just, uh, it's it maybe not like a, maybe not better than Terry Garr. Like maybe it shouldn't have won, 
But like I, I think yeah, it makes it's, sense. It's not showy though. It makes sense from the like the narrative that she was writing. It was like, yeah, let's give her an mm-hmm. Oscar. Uh, we not the lead. It, you know, it's the year of Sophie's choice. So, uh, but hey, she was she was fun in Tootsie. <laughs> I do think I do, <laughs> I do think that she has some really good moments in it. Sure. I think like the way that she uses her body language in Tootsie is very good. Uh, like, you know, when she's acting and then when she's in home and when she's in like behind the scenes, she has like all these different like affects uh, of like, oh, yeah, she's definitely used to presenting different ways depending on where she is. Right. And I don't know, it gives her a lot of life. I am. I'm still team Terry Gar, like the way that she delivers the line. I don't take this shit from friends, only from lovers. It's just absolutely amazing. It's already a great line, and the way that she delivers <laughs> yeah. it, like that pause that she does in the middle, is just absolutely mm. amazing. She deserved the win. I love her grabbing food everywhere she goes. It's like, you're, you're a starving artist, obviously. Very relatable. Like, oh, I already ate. I'm just going to take this back home. <laughs> like when she's like p- putting stuff in her purse, and it's like, it's for my dog. Yeah. Like, I've done that, okay? I've been at places. <laughs> I, I was at parties in L.A., where, you know, I was a starving artist and I would just, mm-hmm. they had free food. It was like, listen, I carry a bag for a reason. <laughs> just walk in. It's like, this is a wedding. Just walk in. Yeah, I totally we, know them. Grab, grab, grab. We had this, we had this uh, networking nights at my film school. And mm-hmm. one time my roommate literally just, and they like, they lured you in with pizza. They were like, it's free pizza. My roommate, <laughs> my roommate didn't want to stay for the networking night. She literally just told me and my other roommate like grab a pizza box and go and we basically <laughs> just ran away from the networking party with a box of pizza each awesome so my all this to say terry gar and tootsie is very relatable <laughs> a thousand percent uh someone we did not list here but this is her first movie is gina davis gina oh, davis yeah, shows right. up in this oh movie. yeah that's yeah. wild uh, which is f- fun to see her yeah and i quipped that when she's shocked we see how she got casted for beetlejuice Mm -hmm. she does the the face yeah the face yeah no she's i like gina davis gina davis is also um i I don't know if either of you know this like i blacklist is maybe a bit of an extreme position to take but has definitely found it hard to get certain roles here in the last like two decades but have either of you heard like what her mission was like what she wanted to change in hollywood no I, I, I feel like I have, but I don't remember. Yeah. All she wanted, because when it's pointed out to you, especially in like 80s, 90s, early 2000s, look at any crowd. Just look at a crowd in a movie and it's 90% guys just standing there. Even the, even the small children oh, are mean all the boys. Extras. Okay. Yeah. Just the extras. Yeah. And she's like, all I want is a 50-50 split. Half women, half men. If you go to any parade, if you go to anywhere in real life, it's half men and half women. So why do movies have 90% men standing around? And people didn't like that. I mean, you <laughs> and it's still not really the case. It's so weird. It's an interesting cause to take up. Uh, good for her. Mm-hmm. I, I always thought that she, she was kind of like blacklisted because of uh, uh, that pirate movie that bombed. And it kind of ended her career. That's also the thing. I think that was maybe an... Uh, what movie? Um, uh, what is it called cutthroat um, island cutthroat island yeah it's supposed to be awful it's supposed to be one of the worst movies of all time but i think that's a, like a handy way to explain it yeah it's like it, oh it's the movie but it's like probably didn't not. stop jail well no it did stop jail for a while yeah she didn't really get a job and after G- jiggly jiggly for like Geely. 15 years if, so. uh, if bruce willis can be in five direct-to-video movies he each year where he spends like movies. five minutes it's he like, must 
Yeah, because they're all shit. And uh, yeah, he looks so unhappy. I mean, I shouldn't pity a guy like that, but have you ever watched like well, any clips from any of these new straight to DVD movies or straight to streaming? He looks miserable. It's just mm-hmm. he looks like Adam Sandler ten years ago, just broken. Yeah, I can't wait for your your book that you're gonna write about the broken men of Hollywood, Dave. <laughs> well, honestly, this this last thing. So Dabney Coleman is one of those character actors I just love when he shows up because when you start to get into movies, there's those certain people that you see in like every single movie or like a lot. We we've already seen James Hong, for instance, this this year, Dave. It's like, oh, it's James Hong's. Oh, yeah. it's Dabney Coleman. It's like, oh, it's John C. McGinley or whatever it is. The people are like in so many things just because it's like, oh yeah, we'll take this guy. Um, all right, so the cinematographer for this was Owen Roisman. His top three films you would know him from were The French Connection, Network, and The Exorcist. Wow. I find that hilarious in a way. It's like, that's range. probably why this film still looks kind of good, <laughs> like just like photographically, because it's like, yeah, I have a great cinematographer that you got for this romantic comedy that you're making. Yeah, I, the colors uh, are just, just very, very pretty. And yeah. uh, the use of light is just... Uh, it's just very interesting because he even manages to make like the TV sets, which are just kind of like, you know, it's a soap. So they're all like kind of like washed out lit. He even manages to make right. those those scenes look interesting, which is it's, it's pretty hard, uh, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's very, very well shot movie. This is like me having to take a deep breath here because so it's written by credited as at least story by Don McGuire and Larry Gelbart screenplay by Larry Gelbart and Murray Shizgal uncredited rewrites by at least these three or these four Barry Levinson, Robert Garland, Robert Kaufman, and Elaine May. So each of them had some sort of pass on this script. Uh, of course, directed by Sidney Pollack. So as you just heard, the writing credits are a bit absurd <laughs> for this. In fact, if you read Pauline Kael's review of this movie, her first entire paragraph is laying out the story about the writing team and who got credit for this movie. But there were so many people involved, like I was saying before, it was had to be settled in arbitration before the movie could even be released. Uh, but she ends her description with this. She says, Pollock must have saved whatever he could of the best of each script because Tootsie sounds as if one superb comedy writer had done it all. There is talk in Hollywood now of forming the I also wrote almost directed Tootsie Club. So being a little bit snarky there at the very end. <laughs> so for the credited writers, of course, Larry Galbart is pretty famous comedy writer. He was one of those people who worked with Sid Caesar early on in his career. But at this time, would probably have been most known for either one, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which he co-wrote with Bert Shevlov, which is also the first show that had both music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. Wow. And of course, I was wondering why he's so firm with that. I'm like, I've never heard of that before. And you're like, so excited, what? so impassioned. It's like performed at every college every year if you go to it. It's like, uh, anyways, of, don't watch the movie, though. The movie's actually pretty bad. The But of course, he co-created and wrote for the first four seasons of MASH, which was entering its 11th and final season in 1982. So uh, his credited co-writer was Murray Shizgal, much more well-known as a playwright, specifically for a play called Love, L-U-V. Which we have actually talked about, Dave, very briefly, very tangentially, because it was the first, it was what broke Alan Arkin out. So it was Alan Uh, Arkin's big break as starring in that play. And it was also one of the big breaks by Mike Nichols, because he was the one who directed that play (laughs) in New York. That disproves how incestuous Broadway is. This, This appears to be the only screenwriting credit this guy has ever had. So he just stuck to plays before and after this. And this is the only time he came aboard to help write a screenplay. Maybe he just maybe he just wrote like the the scenes with the plays. Mm. 
Maybe could have, yeah, but yeah. that's actually not a bad idea. Could, yeah. could very well have been. The initial idea for the movie Tootsie started with this producer by the name of Charles Evans. And really all it was at the very beginning was down and out actor dresses as a woman to get jobs, right? So it's the basic plot of the, or the setup for this movie. It actually started in the, like the mid to late 70s. The, the person who was attached first to be in this when it was still in the 70s was Buddy Hackett. Buddy Hackett was was a guy who was supposed to be in the center role, which I think they would have definitely leaned in more into like it's Buddy Hackett in a dress. Am, is probably what it would have probably been. I've heard Buddy Hackett's voice, and I just I I want to know what he was planning on doing. Like, what choices was he going to make <laughs> yes. to make his voice not sound like Buddy Hackett? <laughs> I, 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 like, how would you have sounded like a woman? Yeah. So they go through multiple screenwriters, directors. One of which was originally supposed to be Hal Ashby, so of Harold and Maude fame, was supposed to direct this movie for a while. He falls out, um, and eventually it does come to be Sidney Pollock. Pollock had been directing since 1965. We already talked about some of his famous movies that he would have been known for. Uh, he and Dustin Hoffman, though, from what it sounds like, uh, did not get along while making this movie like at all. Like had shouting matches almost every day about how they wanted to do it. Again, if you, we, we've already brought up, but honestly, I think the biggest disagreement was. Was this a comedy or was this not a comedy? I honestly think that's what the biggest disagreement was between the two of them. Pollock thinking it was, Hoffman thinking it was not. Which is a pretty big disagreement to have about your movie. Like, yeah. like what are you what are you making? Right. Well, there's actually there's that scene that you see even in the movie where um he's dressed up as Dorothy and he's hailing the taxi, right? And then he hits him with the bags. Like that's so Hoffman like wanted to like literally beat him up. <laughs> he wanted to like beat him up like bloody, and like that's what he wanted to do within within the scene. And it's like I was like, no, we're we're not going to do that. That's not what this movie is. Absolutely insane. Personally, I laugh every time I beat somebody up. Uh, I mentioned this YouTube video, but I this is kind of the not exact quote. I'm paraphrasing here. I was not a beautiful woman once they had done all the makeup, but I didn't think I did think I'm an interesting woman. And what upset me is that I know if I had met myself at a party, I wouldn't have talked with her because she's not attractive. There's too many interesting women I've not met because I've been brainwashed. Um, I will say just as a quick aside, I, I want to pick up on this here in like 30 seconds. I actually do think this movie works better if she is not like an, a, a conventionally attractive woman. I think it actually works a little bit better. Oh yeah, definitely. Hoffman would spend time on the set of general hospital at the time to get a feel of what like a soap opera felt like method. Uh, and then of course came out very well reviewed second highest grossing movie of 1982. So that's kind of your quick overview of, of the making of Tootsie. I, I you mentioned the, the quote and I, I just went on a mental tangent thinking mm -hmm. about it again. <laughs> so fascinating. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah, I think oh, I think that's we should the, follow that tangent. I think that whole thing is is interesting because uh, I was I have the the yeah like the I think I mentioned that I have the Criterion Blu-ray, and it has a lot of the recorded rehearsals. Not even rehearsals; it's just kind of like set like set. It has it's like the makeup tests and the wardrobe tests intercut mm -hmm. with Sidney Pollack and uh, Dustin Hoffman kind of just like reading the script at each other, and it's really interesting because. I, I don't know. They just keep like workshopping these lines without even without even talking about them. They just they just say the lines differently and bounce them back. And it's just kind of like that's that's the process. And it was like, oh, interesting. And then they start like arguing and it's like, oh, yeah, there I see the, the tension. Even in the makeup and the wardrobe test, Dustin Hoffman is talking a lot about at that. He's like talking about like 
Mm-hmm. Oh, women are probably very uncomfortable all the time. Uh, which, you know, yeah. <laughs> but uh, he's like, you know, he's like in a wig and like with like, he even has fake teeth. Mm-hmm. He goes on this whole thing about how like women usually have like longer teeth than men. And so that he he has like this teeth that he puts on and smiles and is like, see, this is this is Dorothy's smile and this is my smile taking them <laughs> off. And it's just like, huh, he, he's paying attention to a lot of these like tiny things, which I, I guess speaks to his commitment to, to like acting in general, but also uh, portraying women down to the last detail, which you know, I don't know if the teeth thing was really necessary, but it is it is interesting that he was paying so much attention to it. Right. And that and he was thinking about it, like you said, like, you know, he was thinking about how he looked ugly and how uh, and he was thinking about, like, the discomfort that he had to carry as Dorothy. And I think yeah, I definitely think it, c- it comes across in his performance for sure. Yeah, no, I think that's what makes this such a good performance. It's just it's very it is playful. But it is also very grounded. Mm-hmm. And it ultimately, I don't know, I guess to me, Tootsie is kind of a movie about the the things that men get away with and the things that women have to put up with. Well, especially too, like what really, really makes this movie work. Like you could have good performances in another movie. You could have all these funny lines that happen in, in another movie. But I think what really makes this hit home and actually become a little bit deeper or more deeper than that is... The way that he feels, the way that the Dustin Hoffman character feels awful for seeing how the Dabney Coleman character is treating the Jessica Lange character is exactly how he is treating the Terry Garr character. And so there's this weird inflection point where it's like, oh, I'm literally treating this woman the same way that I'm getting angry at for this other guy treating this other woman that I find attractive. I think that's just much more, um, much more dramatic to be able to be caught in the middle of that realization this is why the ending is so stupid and i think that which ending are we talking about that he goes back and he gets jessica lang to be uh, his partner and i think that do you think okay go you finish first. well i just think that at the end it it uh, does that 80s cheapen thing i mean there's they might as well have done a stop motion heel click as they walked away you know <laughs> on the sidewalk together it's uh it's something that i couldn't overcome because i feel like the idea of him learning about, let's we now use the word privilege, then allowed him to score the woman of his dreams. What a shit lesson, frankly. And I think that, he, you know, it doesn't feel like, especially the way he's portrayed, it sounds like maybe he's just being himself. He's so far on the dick scale at the beginning of this film. It's really actually sure. hard to watch him. I mean, there's a reason, you know, nobody's hiring. He's not getting jobs. Yeah, yeah, and it, it might just, might have been, uh, it almost feels like they just took uh, live recordings of him at actual auditions, giving people a hard time. And to, uh, to be fair, Dave, it doesn't make sense for a tomato to sit down, okay? <laughs> it really doesn't. <laughs> you know, dark, you know I, I need you to die in the center of a stage. It's hilarious. You know, that kind of stuff is really funny. But yeah. um, see, I guess my disagreement with you, Dave, I don't know if she does get back with him or not. I think she's allowing him back in her life, quote unquote, but I don't think they're getting together. They're holding hands. Scene. At least that, yeah, but I, I, that, even if they did like get back together, that relationship is not ending happily. Yeah, I think it's... I don't know. I don't see, I don't see this movie being trying to say that they're getting back together and everything's going to be great. It has more of a, I think that final scene has more of a, like a friendship kind of air to it. 
I feel like because I don't feel like necessarily that Dustin Hoffman's arc is exclusively about like learning that sexism exists. I also think that it's part of it's partly of how learning how to relate to women in a non-sexual way. I think that's uh, that's an interesting part of the story. And I that's why okay. to me at the end it's more about like friendship. I'm not saying this was the intention. That's just how I see it. Well, I, the thing is, and maybe, you know, again, this is that word coding, you know, as a heterosexual man who's watched films by heterosexual men about heterosexual relationships, his entire angle is to have sex with this woman. I mean, he tries mm -hmm. to in drag. And in the end, when he's having that conversation with her, it's not about let's be friends. It's that we're soulmates and we're meant to have this great uh, romantic relationship it's just that you threw a drink in my face because uh, I came on too strong by lying to you, all right? Uh, and now you already are my best friend, so let's go fuck. I mean, that's that's the whole angle at the end, which I think is obnoxious. I think if, like, I agree with you. I think that if they had gone the other way and wanted to make a platonic sort of a setup, they need to script that conversation differently at the end there. I, I don't like the idea of chasing chasing down somebody sure. down and, and basically like catching them at a sidewalk and then making this emotional plea for what you know and why did he go see the dad in a dive bar right and make really shitty homophobic jokes to you know make peace bullshit you know he doesn't need to do that there's the only reason somebody would do that in a film is to angle to get back in that bed uh dressed as a man this time and i uh for me and i i, I started getting a little irritated by that whole last three scenes. I can't wait for the first, uh, like, Christmas or Thanksgiving. It's like, remember when my dad proposed to you that right? one time? What a, what a crazy story that is. weird, man. It just falls apart. The, the I think you should have just walked away. I often do walk away when you come into the room. The thing that I, I kind of like is that the plea is not necessarily, like, I don't know. Like, I don't see it as a very romantic plea. I see it more as he for once was kind of forced i guess by being dorothy to connect to a woman in like a friendly way like he couldn't really have sex with her so he just kind of became friends with her by accident and i think that they actually became very good friends and i think that's what both of them are missing at the end like the friendship I, I, it's not explicit. It, I, I'm, I'm not going to give the movie like full credit for it, but I do think that by not making it like super explicitly romantic at the very end, it leaves the door open to the fact that these two people really just became friends. Yeah, I, I'd probably have much more of your response, Dave, if they did a kiss at the end. I'd be like, mm, that's not earned. I don't, I, <laughs> I, I don't agree with that. I'm going to say it's, it's open to interpretation. I, because I, I think that. A lot of that, I guess the movie shows that that kind of transgression of gender in order to be better is like a positive thing. Maybe not like impersonating a woman full time <laughs> to get a mm -hmm. job. But I do find it interesting that all these all these things that led to the self-actualization of him was essentially transgressing gender and gender expectations be it by like just befriending a woman in like a non-sexual like with like a non-sexual component without a sexual component sorry and i i find that just 
I don't know. I think that is the movie. It is kind of a romantic comedy because it has that romance angle. But I do think that beyond that, it it has such a wider objective than just romance. So that's why I'm inclined to give it uh, the benefit of the doubt in terms of it's about it's mostly about friendship, I guess, for the two of them. Yeah, I, I think the, the 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 other major criticism you you could level at. I, I'll, I'll admit I did not search very long and hard for examples of this, but I could see someone writing a, a pretty decent takedown of this movie, for instance, where in order for women to get equality, they have to act more like a man. Like you could yeah. read that reading into this movie for sure. And I, this is me speaking way out of turn. I want to be very clear as I am not part of the the trans community. I'm sure that there is that element of well as well of like trans representation being shown as like they're hiding something. They're trying to get something out of you that uh, they're, they're trying to trick you, that sort of thing. Even though this isn't explicitly a trans narrative, but it's still the idea of a man dressing up as a woman to get something that he otherwise would not be able to get. So I definitely think there's criticism you could level at this movie yeah. for sure. And that's like what I'd argue is the the things that, well, I guess it's, it's the fear that we talked about, not fear, but it's like that, uh, that doubt that we talk about of like, Oh, this movie probably hasn't aged very well. It's, it's most mm. definitely because, you know, the eighties were not a very friendly time for trans people in media. It was the decade of like, Right. What dress to kill. It's right. just it's kinda like it would be very predictable for Tootsie to have sort of like a trans panic uh knee jerk response right. to like transgression of gender. Right. Well there's actually that line, and again, I know it's again Dustin Hoffman saying this, but there is actually that point that he makes to Dabney Coleman where he's like, Are you saying that masculine women can't be beautiful? Right. And I thought, it was, oh, that's an interesting line to put into the mouth of someone in 1982. And you actually see the women in that scene being like, yeah, like you're, you actually have a point. Yeah. So I, again, I, I don't want to say it's all Elaine May, but I feel like probably a woman being a part of this script had a lot to do with them being like, let's rethink some of it, the way we're going to do this. It definitely has like, you know, a female perspective thrown in into the script because it, it has a lot of nuance that I don't think male screenwriters in the 80s were very inclined to explore. And, you know, I, I doubt that there were any intentions of it being progressive from, like, a, an actually trans perspective. I, I don't think right. that cis people in the early 80s were, no, you know, we're, we're going to think about that. <laughs> but I do, I do agree with something that you said, Kyle, and is that I think it was in your letterbox review. I don't I'm not entirely sure if you've mentioned it so far that the joke is rarely, oh, look, a man on a dress. There is comedy right. around that, but I don't think that the comedy is supposed to like that be the, the, the butt of the joke. Maybe a couple of times there's a there's a few lines that you're like, oh, that that is not great. But at the same, mm -hmm. t like when Bill Murray is like, no, is it Bill Murray or is it, is it uh, Sidney Pollack that is that says like, you know, I hope that you're not doing this because you like wearing those those outfits. And and Dustin Hoffman yes, is like, yeah. I'm not even answering that, which is interesting because it kind of sets up a possibly transphobic joke and it kind of dismisses it uh, before it, before right. the punchline is kind of like, uh, I'm not saying that was on purpose. But uh, obviously, speaking as a cisgender person, I, I'm not going to say, like, this movie is not transphobic. 
Uh, it definitely has some undertones. But I think that the intro anything that could be interpreted as, oh, that joke has definitely some transphobic undertones was more of a byproduct of them wanting to make a comedy that transgressed gender to explore, mm-hmm. you know, explore a gender binary um, to good intentions. So even if it was, even if at some point the jokes are, this doesn't, this doesn't, you know, forgive them, I guess, if, if, there, if there's humor that is kind of unfriendly to trans people. But at least I think I can say that those were not the intentions, uh, which is more yeah. than you can say about, you know, other um, men in drag, straight men in drag men comedies. In drag. Yeah. Yeah. The, the joke wasn't that he was ugly. Although I must say that that joke when they're about to do the close up on Dorothy and the, the director and the producer immediately are like, not yeah. too close. How far you can... Yeah, how far can you pull back? I, I then, thought that uh, was yeah. I thought that was I'll very funny. Yeah. Um, well, I'll I'll say my one of my other favorite jokes is the uh, time where he has to look after Jessica Lange's child, the little baby who's like a terror. <laughs> He's like cleaning him up, and she like shows the little baby in the mirror, like, "See, look at you. That's what a bad girl looks like." I think that's really <laughs> funny uh, of yelling at a kid. It's because you don't have kids. That's probably true. The other one I like is like uh, I forget which character asks him, but they do ask the question like. Are you gay? In what sense? In what sense? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a really great response. Because, again, you could have done that way worse of a response. Like, that's a really funny response. I I wrote that down, too, because I thought that was such a good joke. It's like, Mm -hmm. uh, I guess it's like, 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 I'm like, oh, well, that's not a no. Uh, I just, I I thought it was such a, (laughs) I I laughed so much when when he says that, especially because the way that he delivers the line is so funny, which is kind of wild. It's like, oh, did this guy really mm-hmm. not see that he was making a really funny comedy? I know. That's well, like, that's the weirdest I feel thing. Like I wonder a little bit about that Dustin Hoffman wanting to rebrand this. If that's not PR, but him doing that in retrospect. Because this thing is written by comedians as a comedy. Yeah. yeah. But as he's performing it and having these revelations, maybe he's like, oh, I got to make this real because I'm method. I'm super method, man. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, I have a feeling maybe... Maybe he should try acting. There's a... Oh, there's like a deliberate tension there because uh, there's nothing that he does that isn't actually comedic either, Dustin Hoffman, with the exception of... uh, No, I mean, his whole performance is comedy for him. Honestly, I think that's probably why the performance works so well because that's what they always say is that in a comedy, the characters don't know they're in a comedy. So you kind of have to play it straight. And that's what makes it really hilarious is because they think they're acting rationally when they're not. (laughs) I mean, it was probably some kind of uh, that like introspection that he talks about, right? It's like, oh yeah, Mm -hmm. he was going through some very serious like self-reflection and maybe, maybe that clouded his judgment a little bit. And I was like, no, this is like, you know, this is like a serious, important story. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe maybe it was him just like kind of uh, reflecting what he was feeling, which is, I guess, interesting. You both brought up an interesting thing, too, which is uh, how Hollywood wasn't sensitive in the 80s. I don't think that's true. I mean, if there's anything we learned in 1971 is that the writers and the performers are sensitive to everything because they're part of every different type of culture that underlies its the assumption of the public, what like the public doesn't give a shit or are insensitive as a group to certain themes. 
And I think this movie says that because they wrote such an intelligent script around what could have been a very inflammatory and problematic subject, and the public loved it. It was written mm -hmm. so well that, you know, the average American viewer didn't come out of the theater being offended or angry or felt like something egregious had happened. They'd seen pornography. They came out thinking this movie should be awarded an Oscar. And I think that's, uh, it's a feat. It's a feat on the writing side that they were able to pull this movie out, that it could get us talking in 2022 about gender equality and representation mm -hmm. and still essentially hold up, you know, on its uh, foundations, whether it looks right anymore, because we have more evol evolved dialogue in public now, but it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. It's, it's definitely worth watching. I think it falls in that, like, kind of like uh, some like it hot area of like, oh, this can be read in a lot of ways that they probably didn't anticipate. They, yeah, because, right. yeah, like, I'm sure that they knew that trans people existed and that that was an undercurrent in Tootsie. But I don't think they were, like, setting off to make, like, a story that had any sort of statement to, to deliver about trans people specifically. I think, more than anything, it's about, like, workplace misogyny and, uh, yes. and like, yeah, like, workplace harassment and sexism in general. But... Um, I do think that in exploring gender in a way that was so transgressive itself, it lended itself to continue, like you said, Dave, to still talk about it in a somewhat positive way. Because then when they made the Broadway adaptation a few years ago, it did have a lot of man in a dress jokes. It did have a lot of... Uh, yeah, they added oh, they those in. Oh. Yeah, like the, the musical adaptation with, uh, I think it was Santino Fontana. He won the Tony for it. Yeah, 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 it apparently did. I, I was reading this article about it written by a trans critic about how like a lot of the humor was very, you know, was very lowbrow. Uh, uh, yeah, lowbrow and kind of aggressive towards trans people without having to mention trans people. And I think that this movie, like the movie does kind of something in the opposite direction, that it does some stuff that... You know, I, I don't know, in a, in a different, in a, in a modern version of Tootsie that was maybe handled by queer people and, you know, like trans people, it could have been, it could have been explored further. But I think that the movie version, like the original movie is kind of just, it, in transgressing gender, it makes some cases in favor of um, a community that it wasn't interested in serving in the first place at the same time that it does some harm mm -hmm. to it. Um, it's a mixed bag, but what an interesting one. Yeah. As far as the uh, musical adaptation, it's one of those things where the adapt, I, 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 I don't want to speak out of term, but it, it was two guys who, who did it. So I don't know how they identify, but I think kind of missed the point of the movie. <laughs> so they just added their own stuff. In. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. If they're successfully sidestepping all the lowbrow shit in a film, and then some idiots add it back in into a different adaptation. There's uh, there's something magical happening in 1982 or yeah. 78, whenever this was written and then workshopped. And maybe, like you said, Elaine May was like, no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're like, we're going to do this. She's like, no. If you want this to survive, you're not putting that fucking joke in. And they're like, all right, fine. You're smart. Right. We'll let it go. Finally. As long as you don't get credit. Yeah. I mean, for a movie that was made... <laughs> go make Ishtar. <laughs> go make Ishtar. <laughs> <laughs>
where a movie that was made two years after Dress to Kill. It's just, mm-hmm. it, it is uh, surprisingly friendly to the idea of um, mm-hmm. transgressing gender beyond just drag. Uh, and uh, yeah. I think that's, that's uh, definitely to its credit, is a very interesting thing. It's still dated in other aspects, but... I will say this last thing here, too, completely going in a different direction. So the old creepy actor guy, you can say a lot about him, uh, you know, that he's a creep and everything. Great singing voice. I thought he had a great singing voice. <laughs> that was another one of my favorite jokes when when yeah. Bill Murray asked. Why like, let him in? It's yeah. like, he started singing. It was like, is he going to go to singer? That was such a good joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're done here. All right. Well, the machine has said that we do have to wrap things up here. So we are going to go right into Critics' Choice. This is where we take a look at some of the critics at the time and what they thought. So both Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael did go and see this movie. Roger Ebert gave it four out of four stars and said, Tootsie has a lot of fun with its plot complications. We get almost every possible variation on the theme of mistaken sexual identities. The movie also manages to make some lighthearted but well-aimed observations about about sexism. It also pokes satirical fun at soap operas, New York show business agents, and the Manhattan social pecking order. And it turns out to be a touching love story after all. So touching that you may be surprised how moved you are at the conclusion of this comedy. Yeah, my point exactly. Problematic. (laughs) Problematic. Ebert's such a softy. Uh, (laughs) Pauline Kael loved this movie as well, I will say. She wrote... Uh, when Jessica Lange appears, the movie changes from the crackling, rapid-fire presentation of the hopes versus the realities of out-of-work actors' lives to something calmer and perhaps richer. She has a facial structure that the camera yearns for, and she has talent too. Her face is softer here than in Francis, her Julie is a dream girl, and she's like a shock absorber to Michael. When he, dressed as Dorothy, sees her, some of his harassability melts away. Julie has honey-colored hair and a friendly smile. She looks freshly created, just hatched, and pleasantly, warmly spacey. Enough to be deeply impressed by Dorothy's high-principled talk about the theater. Jessica Lang helps to keep the movie from being too frenetic. There is none of the usual actress's phoniness in her work. As Julie, she says her lines in such a mild, natural way that it makes perfect sense for Michael to stop in his tracks and stare at her in wonder. This picture is marvelous fun. That's what she had to say. I want someone to talk about me the way that Pauline Kael talks about <laughs> Jessica Lange. That was gorgeous. That's yeah, a love letter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> uh, Jose, you look like you've just hatched and are pleasantly, warmly spacey. <laughs> oh. Derivative. Come up with your own yeah. lines, Kyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so that may be another pitch to why people were so uh, beholden to Jessica Lange. Uh, Jose, does this hold up and do you still think it's culturally relevant? Yeah, I think it definitely, for the most part, it holds up. Technically speaking, it definitely does. You know, thematically, that's uh, mm-hmm. that's where the caveat is. Oh, yeah. But it's a very funny movie and the jokes aren't necessarily mean-spirited, which is, I mean, I feel like the jokes are more at the expense of Michael than at what Michael is doing. Right. So that's definitely a plus. I, and I do think that it has, it has some interesting, it, 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 it serves as a mouth opener for a kind of, um, interesting conversations about the portrayal of gender in film and the way that it has evolved. I think like, sure. Especially for like, for a movie in, from 1982, the female characters are all so different from each other 
they're i mean yes. there's not a lot of them but i i guess i guess if you count dorothy as a female character which i'm doing in this argument i think so dorothy uh julie and um terry gar's character sandy, sandy thank you yeah uh they're all so different and i think that is interesting for a movie that's from the early 80s where often yeah. very often yeah, sure. very limited in terms of the roles that they could play uh i feel like it wasn't until the 90s that it started opening up to like a wider range i don't know it has some it has some interesting maybe not all of not all of the statements that tootsie has to make are relevant today but some of them still are i mean it's not like yeah, it's not like sure. the last few years in hollywood news have shown us that sexual harassment in the workplace of production has gone away yeah that's true uh dave what do you what do you say uh, i'm along the same lines i i just want to add it, you know there's also the uh, studio head is a woman which i think was fascinating it wasn't right. just another dude uh, i don't know if she's the assistant director but the uh the other woman that's like uh, counting them down and setting up the shots is also i mean it's kind of they're not fleshed out characters so they're not really part of the script but uh you know it's it's pretty good rep uh, representation for 1982 yeah it's it's definitely watchable i feel like the average audience will still enjoy it the jokes are essentially timeless because they yeah they are not they're pretty highbrow even the lowbrow ones <laughs> so uh there isn't really a cheap laugh through it and they don't date because they're written so well and they're set up so well yeah. i i like the uh the one at the very beginning where he's auditioning and he's like, I can be shorter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> These are lifts. Um, yeah. So I love that you mentioned, the, I love that you mentioned the studio executive too, uh, because mm -hmm. she, her reaction to Michael's reveal was so good. Yeah. Like her facial expression, <laughs> the way she delivers the line, so good. She did the, the most out of every second of screen time she had. Yeah, she was great. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think it holds up pretty well uh, and not in the sense that I want to make it about picking it apart, but it is also a movie from 1980. We joked a little bit. Sure. It's got a sitcom vibe. Some of the music that comes out with the lyrics and, it, you know, you get a little bit mm -hmm. of that cheese factor, which you have to expect from a comedy in 1980s. Uh, and it's still relevant. I it, I was thinking about this while you were, while we're talking and it's not just uh, sexual harassment. This... Uh, this movie kind of speaks to just judging human beings in general, uh, whatever mm -hmm. your you know, denomination and identification is. And for that, it, it gives you a good thematic uh, seat to ask yourself whether you do this as well. And watching this, I have to ask myself, am I uh, judging the book by its cover often? And, you know, the answer is yes. But uh, should it right. be yes? Probably not. Uh, so it's got you a lot of power. wouldn't talk to me. For the first few months, because I was too like, uh, you've, you've been on record <laughs> oh, as wow. that. Wow. Um, I, I'm guessing yes, too, honestly. <laughs> I, I, like I said, I ended up loving this movie. I like rewatching it again. I think the comedy beats are so good. I have a bit of misgivings with that wrap up uh, as well. He doesn't fully, I don't think, nail the, the very, very end, but 98% of the movie I was totally on board with and was loving what I was watching. So, so 4.5 is where you go. All right. All right. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, 
I will say this, as far as some other cultural relevance, was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including yeah. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Cinematography, and Best Supporting Actress for both Terry Garr and Jessica Lange. And Jessica Lange, of course, won the award. The only award this movie got was Jessica Lange's win. Uh, in 1998, the Library of Congress deemed that this film was culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Um, I don't know which one of those three it, it got in under, but that's uh, what it was, and is uh, being preserved with the National Film Registry. It's because the, the poster most... had the American flag on it, and they're like, we've got to keep right. this. We've got to keep this. Got a postage stamp. Someone there was just a huge fan of Terry Garth's performance, and I understand that. <laughs> yeah, that's possible, too. <laughs> In the most recent American Film Institute's list of the 100 best American films, it ranked at the number 69 position. Nice. Funny internet number. <laughs> yeah. In the American Film Institute's list of the 100 best American comedies, it ranked at the number two position. Ooh, what was number one? If I remember correctly, it's Some Like It Hot, which is interesting. Really? It's two cross-dressing movies <laughs> that are like the top two. Uh, and then we've already talked about the musical version of the show premiered on Broadway in 2019. Music and lyrics by David Yazbek, book by David Hor- or by Robert Horan. But yeah, from what I remember, it was not received all that warmly by the critics uh, when it came out. One of the uh, Academy Award nominations, by the way, was for Best Original Song, which is interesting. What? Do you know who the songwriting team was for this movie, Dave? No. Crosby, Stills, and Nash? No, I'm just joking. What? We've talked about them already this year. It's Alan and Marilyn Bergman again, who oh. wrote the music for Yes, Giorgio. Oh. <laughs> That's why it's so memorable for you, Dave. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I didn't even know so, there was an original read- song in this film. I know. Like, I don't think actually either of the songs are all that good, but that's no. beside the point. I only remember Go Tootsie Go. <laughs> yeah. Or ro- no, ro- Go Tootsie so, ro- I don't remember the, the lyrics, but the melody was very say, catchy. Yeah. <laughs> I kept humming that all night last night. Oh. Uh, Why we share screening? Because we're going to oh. listen to this best oh, original song on. nominee as I. Uh, it's very 80s as we go through this. Uh, that We need to rate this film, of course, but before we do, that is what Dave and I thought. So what do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs. the machine at gmail.com. Music's too loud. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. I'm going to turn that down no, just, just a bit. No, just there keep it go. in the cut so everybody knows how obnoxious <laughs> this is. Yeah. We, we also release two videos each week on our YouTube channel that matches the movie we're talking about that week. On Mondays, we react to the trailer, and then on Fridays, it's a mini-review of the film. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash kdvstm. And if you want to support... This is my go-to karaoke (laughs) song, actually. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next Mm -hmm. apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Let's get to the rating of this movie. The dulcet tones of... I wish I could remember what this guy's name was. Knowing karaoke places, this is actually a song that's in their catalog. I'm sure it is. You can't actually find good songs, but this one's on there for sure. (laughs) Exactly true. Um, All right. So... I mean, Jose, I know it's awful to say, but you have really no say in our rating scheme. But if you were to rate this movie out of five, what would you have given it? Um, I would give it like a, a like a four point five. To be honest, I I yeah. 
I enjoy it a lot. Every time I revisit it, it surprises me how fun and engaging it is. Well, I am exactly right there with you. Dave guessed it uh, bang on. That is exactly what I'm going to give this movie as well. I really liked it. I, I can see myself actually watching this a bunch more times here now that I've revisited it. Uh, Dave, Mr. Wet Blanket, what are you going to rate this movie? Yeah, I'm trying to think of how wet to make my blanket and keep that. We can you use liked that. it, though. You didn't hate it. You can use that as a quote for the episode. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not, honestly, I don't know how to rate this movie. I think, I think I'm going to give it a four. I was thinking about dipping it even more, but no, I, sure. I think a four. I mean, I, it's, it's fun. I think people can still watch it. I just, I'm just upset by the ending. And now that you played the song, sure. I want to dock it another 0.5 <laughs> because that song's fucking terrible. And I hope you I know, keep it's, it it's in. It's not the good. <laughs> well, it didn't win. <laughs> it did not win. It did not win. No, it's uh, up, up where you belong. I think when that year. How I'm can, not mistaken, how can but... this even be nominated? This is why the Oscars know, are a sham, Kyle. Oh, bullshit. Okay. <laughs> let's do this, Dave. We, let's find out what we are going to watch next week. I'm pretty sure. Just based on we've watched three Best Picture nominees. It's probably going to be the other Best Picture nominee that didn't win the award. So I'm going to push this button here. And I am correct. Uh, next week, we're going to be watching E.T., the extraterrestrial. Oh, sweet. Is what we're going to be watching next week. So Great. Uh, oh, I didn't say what I normally say. Dave, that uh, the ratings that we just did, <laughs> of course, is going to average to 4.25. We'll um, round that down to four. But that is entering our list at the number one position currently, which, uh, again, because we do have a lot of, uh, as you like to say, bangers coming up. Bangers. I'm sure that'll get pushed down a little bit. More bangers than mash. All right. Um, <laughs> so as we wrap up here, Jose, um, if people wanted to follow you online, see what you're up to, what's the easiest way for them to do so? I am on Twitter at Jose M. Luna. And uh, that's also my letterbox in case uh, you want to read my kind of corny, uh, sometimes quippy, mm -hmm. always kind of dumb comments on movies. <laughs> it's, it's a good sell. It's a hard sell that we're doing. <laughs> I, I also have a YouTube channel that is my name and I'm uh, soon releasing a new video essay. So you will, yeah, you will want exciting. to uh, follow me somewhere. <laughs> Is that going to be on Encanto good. as well? Yes, it is on Encanto, yeah. and uh, but this one is about its connections to my favorite book of all time. So the, you know, uh, which is what? It's Gabriel Garcia Marquez's One Hundred Years of Solitude, a book about yeah. murder, incest, and war, and it inspired the newest Disney animated movie. So it should be interesting. <laughs> That's all I yeah. can think about when I was watching Encanto was incest and war. Yeah, <laughs> the, the two main things that I came out of that movie theater—they're all having yeah. sex with each other, right? I mean, that's everybody got that. That's, that's let's what, hope not. That's that will be the button to end the show. <laughs> Always end on incest, is what I say. Personally, I laugh every time I beat somebody up.